Before I start this week's episode of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, just the usual note of thanks to Sora Shimazaki at Pexels, who took the photograph which adorns the cover art. Let's crack on. Hello and welcome to episode 67 of the Financial Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Kirkbride. It's been one hell of a busy week this week. Fraud, money laundering all over the place. Usual roundup of cyber attack news right at the end. So let's crack on with it all. As usual, I've linked the stories which I flag in the podcast right there in the description. So let's start, as we normally do, with sanctions. Sanction... Uh, the sanctions news this week emanates just as last week's did principally from the UK, but there are some other bits of news later on. From the UK, we've got uh, the usual tweaking of sanctions already imposed. So there's been one removal from the Syria financial sanctions regime. Abdul Kader Sabra is no longer subject to an asset freeze. And the Sudan financial sanctions regime has also been amended with six additions. All corporations links to both can be found in the podcast description. The final piece of UK sanctions news this week is that the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation has issued an update relating to license applications. The information is provided in the form of a blog post which contains links to relevant license application information. Link to the blog blog post with content is in the podcast description. To the US now where we start with an announcement by the Department of Justice of charges against Gal Luft, a dual US-Israeli citizen for allegedly, amongst other things, seeking to facilitate the sale of Iranian oil to China. The other announcement is from the Office of Financial, sorry, the Office of Foreign Assets Control, which has announced sanctions against Alexander Vulin, the pro-Russian head of Serbia's state security agency, who has, quotes, been implicated in transnational organized crime, illegal narcotic operations, and misuse of public office. Vulin has maintained a mutually beneficial relationship with US-designated Serbian arms dealer Slobodan Tezic, helping ensure that Tezic's illegal arms shipments can move freely across Serbia's borders. Vulin's acts have advanced corruption within Serbia's governing institutions. These acts include leveraging his authority for personal gain, including involvement in a drug trafficking ring. He's used his public positions to support Russia, facilitating Russia's malign activities that degrade the security and stability of the Western Balkans and providing Russia a platform to further its influence in the region. Vulin is the director of Serbia's Security Information Agency and previously served as Minister of Defence and Minister of Interior. These institutions are not the target of these sanctions. OFAC has also announced sanctions against 10 individuals from the Sinaola Sinaloa cartel associated with an illicit fentanyl network. Links to these announcements can be found in the podcast description. And finally on sanctions this week to the European Union, which is being challenged by Russian oligarch Roman Abramovich over the sanctions it imposed on him in March 2022. The General Court of the Court of Justice of the European Union heard the challenge this week in a hearing which is likely to be studied with interest by other oligarchs. Certainly, that is one to watch. Now, that's it for the sanctions news. Wasn't much of it. But, my goodness, the fraud news fills the gap in financial crime news this week with a huge amount of news. There's a really good range of news, as there always seems to be on fraud, actually. 
It's one of the more popular financial crimes. We'll start in the United Kingdom, where the amount of news on authorised push payments, APP fraud, this week has been almost overwhelming. Now, because there happened to be a range of stories on this matter, I think I might as well start with the definition of APP fraud, or authorised authorized push payment fraud. In such frauds, the victim is convinced that they're in discussion with a legitimate authority, for example, a government department, their bank, or some other service provider, internet or something like that, and that they authorise a payment which they believe is due, and the money ends up in the account of the fraudster, whether in the UK or, more commonly, overseas. So, now that's out of the way, let's start with Meta, the owner, of course, of Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, and now Threads, which has been identified by the banking and finance lobby group UK Finance as being the source of 61% of all authorised push payment fraud. This is not the first time that Meta and its platforms have been accused of facilitating this form of fraud. If you go back and listen to episodes 57, 61 and 63, you'll see further accusations have been made by banks and other trade bodies. Indeed, you could go back still further. Plenty of examples of it. I've identified something of a trend in the news and a degree of pressure certainly seems to be growing broadly from the vested interest to see that Meta is more accountable for some of the content which appears on its platforms. Of course, as mentioned, Meta now has threads launched this week, which provides a further potential avenue for scammers and is only likely to increase the pressure from those who operate within the payment system. Now, allied to this report by UK Finance this week, there was an announcement from the UK government which convened a meeting of the Joint Fraud Task Force at which the issue of fraud, especially online fraud, was discussed. The press release provides the following interesting tidbit. Representatives of this meeting discussed the development of an online fraud charter where the tech sector... Uh, with the tech sector to respond to the growing volume of fraud originating on social media platforms. The Charter will ensure that tech firms take action to block scams, make it easier to report frauds and ensure that fraudulent content is swiftly removed. The Security Minister, which I think is Tom Tugendhat, has also called on tech firms to implement stronger measures to tackle fraud on their platforms ahead of the introduction of the Online Safety Bill. Link to the full press release is in the podcast description. Now, again on the subject of APP fraud, the Payment Systems Regulator, the PSR, has published its consultation on two of its draft directions. Now, these are the legal means by which the new APP fraud reimbursement requirements will be implemented. The reimbursement scheme comes courtesy of Section 72 of the Financial Services Markets Act 2023, which allows for reimbursement where the payment order is executed subsequently to fraud or dishonesty. This mandatory, albeit limited, reimbursement scheme for some victims of APP fraud might in part explain the intensity of lobbying and statements on the actions or inactions of Meta. In terms of this consultation, since the PSR would like to implement the scheme by April 2nd, 2024, the consultation remains open until 5pm on the 25th of August 2023, so little over a month's time. This will allow for a reasonable period up to implementation. Link to the consultation document if you want to respond to it is in the podcast description. Now, 
The final APP fraud story this week is a significant one in that the Supreme Court in the United Kingdom has handed down judgment in Philip and Barclays Bank UK PLC, which was a claim by a couple who'd lost £700,000 in an APP fraud where a fraudster convinced them to transfer the money to an account in the United Arab Emirates. They'd sued Barclays for breach of duty, principally concerned with what's known as a quincecare duty. Now, this duty from uh, an older case called Barclays Bank and Quincecare established that a bank should not execute a payment instruction from an agent where the bank is put on notice that there are reasonable grounds to believe that the agent is attempting to defraud the customer. However, this case would have needed an extension, that is, the case of Philip and Barclays Bank, the case that was in the Supreme Court, would have needed an extension of the Quincecare duty to apply to the situation which was faced by the Phillips, namely where the customer authorises an instruction to carry out a payment. So it's not quite on all fours with the case of Quincecare. The Supreme Court, unfortunately for the Phillips, declined to make such an extension. The decision against the background of everything that has happened this week is an interesting one. Indeed, the court, in a single judgment with which the other judges agreed, was delivered by Lord Leggett. Now, there's a bit of food for thought in that judgment where Lord Leggett talks about the current state of the codes applicable in this context and the PSRs, remember the PSR is the Payment Systems Regulator, the Payment Systems Regulator imminent changes which I referred to earlier. Now the following is taken from paragraphs 20 and 21 of the judgment. Since this complaint was made, there have been a number of reports, consultations and regulatory initiatives on this subject, that is APP fraud and the like. The main initiative has been the introduction of the 2019 Voluntary Code for Payment Service Providers called the Contingent Reimbursement Model Code. This code covers measures aimed at reducing the incidence of APP fraud and also provides for the reimbursement of customers who are victims of such scams in certain cases which do not include international payments. To date, however, the code has been adopted by only 10 payment service providers who include Barclays, as it happens. Lord Legat goes on. The Financial Services and Markets Act 2023, which received royal assent on the 29th of June 2023, provides for a mandatory reimbursement scheme. Section 72 of the Act amends Regulation 90 of the Payment Services Regulations to enable liability to be imposed, quote, where the payment order is executed subsequent to fraud or dishonesty. Section 72 requires the payment systems regulator to impose a requirement for reimbursement by payment service providers in such qualifying cases of payment orders executed subsequent to fraud or dishonesty as the regulator considers should be eligible for reimbursement. Such cases are, however, limited to payment orders executed over the faster payment scheme. The proposed new scheme is also confined to customers, charities and micro-enterprises. Larger businesses are not included. It provides subject to potential adjustment through a dispute resolution process for a 50-50 allocation of losses between the sending and receiving providers. It's not proposed that the regulatory obligations arising under the scheme will be directly enforceable by bank customers. 
The link to the full judgment, as well as the press summary, can be found in the podcast description. I'll just say, by way of footnote, that it's worth following what's happening in relation to APP scams because there is a lot of churn on that subject at the moment. So that's it for the UK. Let's turn now to the United States, where the Department of Justice has announced a, uh, the detail of charges against Shakib Ahmed in connection with his attack on a decentralized cryptocurrency exchange, the Crypto Exchange. Ahmed is charged with wire fraud and money laundering following the attack in which he is alleged to have exploited a vulnerability in one of the crypto exchange's smart contracts by inserting fake pricing data causing the smart contract to generate around $9 million of fees which Ahmed was then able to withdraw from the crypto exchange in the form of cryptocurrency. This is understood to be the first criminal case arising from an attack on a smart contract on a decentralized exchange. You can find the full detail of it at the link in the podcast description. The Department of Justice has also announced the sentencing of Allianz Global Investors US LLC, AGI, which has been sentenced for a multi-year securities fraud which relates to a series of private investment funds managed by AGI. The funds collapsed, causing leading uh, uh, loss, causing losses in excess of $8 billion in market value and $3 billion in principle. AGI has received financial penalties comprising over $463 million in forfeiture, over $3.23 billion in restitution, and over $2.33 billion in fines. The link is in the podcast description. In other fraud news from the US, Elizabeth Holmes, remember her, the founder of Theranos, has had her prison sentence for fraud and conspiracy reduced by around two years. Her projected release date is now the 29th of December 2032, just in time for those New Year celebrations. I want to end this week's fraud discussion with something I came across quite by chance this week, and it comes from the British Council. Now, the British Council is an organisation whose aim, among other things, is the promotion of international cultural and educational opportunities. In fact, if you've sat an examination overseas for a UK higher education institution, it's very likely to some degree that it was overseen by the British Council, which provides venues, etc., etc. Well, this week, it updated its list of counter-fraud reports going back to 2016-2017. The reason I mention the reports is that they're interesting as an indication of the frauds, the type of frauds that go on within organisations such as the British Council, and it seems that it's no different to any other kind of organisation or indeed corporation. The range of types of fraud are from the relatively mundane to extreme efforts to extract huge sums by fraudulent means. Those reports are well worth a trawl if you've got a half hour and you work in fraud prevention or fraud compliance. Very interesting. Anyway, the link to it you can find in the podcast description. Now, that's it for fraud. I told you it was a bumper week for fraud. Equally bumper week for money laundering. So let's start with Australia, where a court has officially agreed a $450 fine on the by, uh, which was imposed by the Australian Transaction Reports and Analysis Centre, OSTRAC, on casino operator Crown. The fine, which we originally reported in episode 61, was for a range of money laundering shortcomings. 
it failed appropriately to assess the money laundering and terrorism financing risks they faced and to identify and respond to changes in risk over time. The company did not appropriate uh, did not have appropriate risk-based systems and controls in their AML and CTF programs to mitigate and manage the money laundering and countering the financing of terrorism risks which they faced. They failed to establish an appropriate framework for board and senior management oversight of their AML and CTF programs. Did not have a transaction monitoring program that was appropriate to the nature, size and complexity of their business. Had an enhanced customer due diligence program that lacked appropriate procedures to ensure that higher risk customers were subject to additional scrutiny and it did not conduct appropriate ongoing customer due diligence on a range of specific customers who presented higher money laundering risks. As a footnote to that story, Crown has agreed to pay the fine in interest-free instalments after it argued that it would uh, suffer serious financial hardship if required to pay the full amount immediately. So, the scheme it agreed is as follows. It agreed to pay $125 million within 28 days, a further $125 million within a year, and then the remaining $200 million within two years. In other money laundering news, we turn to the European Union, where the European Banking Authority has been a busy little beaver this week. First, it's announced the findings of its review of 12 competent authorities from nine uh, from nine EU EEA member states responsible for the anti-money laundering and countering the financing of terrorism supervision of banks. It found that following the, quote, EBA's ongoing efforts to foster an holistic approach to AML and CFT, many competent authorities have made tangible progress in tackling money laundering and terrorist financing risks through prudential supervision, and most are on track to embed cooperation and information exchange in their supervisory processes, but that most supervisors were asked to do more to tackle money laundering and terrorist financing risk in their banking sector. The press release and report are linked in the podcast description. Secondly, the EBA has issued an opinion on money laundering and terrorist financing risks affecting the EU's financial sector, which is something it's required to do under the fourth money laundering directive. Naturally, the shifting geopolitical system since the last published opinion features significantly in the report, with the restrictive measures placed on Russian individuals and entities following its invasion of Ukraine and the associated risk of sanctions evasion from that imposition. And we've been looking in this podcast about the move from creating new sanctions or sanctioning new individuals more to enforcement and that shift is understandable but further and this is a direct quote from that opinion new risks arise from the laundering of proceeds from environmental crimes and cyber crimes with a perceived increase in risks associated with financial innovation linked to market growth legislative developments including a comprehensive AML package and the markets in crypto assets regulation create legal uncertainty and hesitancy by some competent authorities and institutions to invest in better financial controls. At the same time, risks relating to corruption, tax crime, cash and terrorist financing remain relevant. The opinion also identifies the continuing risk posed by the financing of terrorism, but especially through the rise in right-wing extremism. The opinion further provides the following, and this is a direct quote. 
With few exceptions, awareness of money laundering and terrorist financing risks is increasing across all sectors under the EBA's AML-CFT remit. But the AML-CFT systems and controls institutions have put in place are not always effective. Transaction monitoring and the reporting of suspicious transactions are particularly weak and rated as poor or very poor by between 30 and 50% of competent authorities, with payment institutions and e-money institutions being among the worst performers in the sector. More competent authorities than ever before have carried out formal money laundering and terrorist financing risk assessments in line with EBA guidelines, and the frequency and intensity of supervisory engagement is increasing, with a tangible impact on levels of inherent and residual risk among credit providers and bureau de change in particular. Nevertheless, AML and CFT supervision is not always commensurate with perceived levels of money laundering and terrorist financing risk, and institutions in some sectors and member states remain largely unsupervised. The link to what is a very lengthy opinion, I think it runs to just over 120 pages, is in the podcast description. The final story on money laundering this week comes from the UK and the work of the Gambling Commission to keep those it regulates in good order. It's announced that a financial penalty of almost £600,000 has been issued together with a warning against Star Racing Limited. As is typical with these actions taken by the Gambling Commission, well, certainly of late anyway, the anti-money laundering action is very frequently bound up with some corporate social responsibility breaches which have been committed by the respective organisation. Insofar as the money laundering breaches are concerned, it breached its licence terms by having, quotes, ineffective policies, procedures and controls in place at the time of the compliance assessment, allowing customers to deposit large amounts before obtaining source of funds information and failing to analyse source of funds information when it was obtained. Link to the press release and notice of sanction can be found in the podcast description. Now, that's it for money laundering. A brief turn now to bribery and corruption. This week's bribery and corruption news is a little thin on the ground, but there are a few interesting pieces to keep the appetite whetted. We'll start in continental Africa with an announcement from Transparency International that on, quotes, Africa Anti-Corruption Day and the 20th anniversary of the adoption of the African Union Convention on Preventing and Combating Corruption, the AUC-PCC, TI has urged all leaders on the continent to remain focused on their agreed anti-corruption commitments and to take all efforts to end corruption in the region. This was echoed by Amnesty International, which also took the opportunity presented by African Anti-Corruption Day and the 2020th anniversary of the adoption of the AUCPCC to urge West and Central African states to, quote, stop persecuting human rights defenders who expose corruption, bribery and abuse of office, and instead take concrete and effective measures to protect and support them. Link to both press releases can be found in the podcast description. The other piece of bribery and anti-corruption news is the designation by the U.S. State Department of former Panamanian President Juan Carlos Borrella Rodriguez, as the press release provides, while serving as Panama's vice president and then president, Borrella accepted bribes in exchange for improperly awarding government contracts. This designation reaffirms the commitment of the United States to combat endemic corruption in Panama. Link is in the podcast description. 
Now, before a quick roundup of other news, a bit of regulatory news, which starts and I suppose ends this week in the United Kingdom with the ripples of a freedom of information request by international law firm Reed Smith, which identifies that enforcement activity against firms and individuals by the Financial Conduct Authority fell in the year ending 31st March 2023. For firms, the drop was 67% from 79 to 26, and for individuals, it was from 111 to 74, which was a drop of around a third. It's unclear what the reason is for this drop. Perhaps it's the case that the majority are behaving, or alternatively, overwork has caused a drop in investigations and enforcement, or at least some kind of lag. Expect more on this, especially as this sort of data usually ends up in a speech by someone from the FCA. Let's keep our eyes open for that one. While one area of regulatory activity experiences a bit of a dip, another continues to have a bit of an uptick, and the FCA has also announced further action against unregistered crypto ATMs. And it's not the first time it's done this, and I've reported on this previously in the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. The link to that press release on the action against crypto exchanges, sorry, crypto ATMs, is in the podcast description. The final bit of news from the UK, the final bit of regulatory news anyway, is action taken by the Financial Conduct Authority in the form of a fine of £2.5 million which has been issued against Bastion Capital London Limited for failure of financial crime controls. As the final notice provides, Bastion had inadequate systems and controls to identify and mitigate the risk of being used to facilitate fraudulent trading and money laundering in relation to business related to four authorised entities and thereby breach principle three of the principles of business and breach principle two also of the principles for business as it did not exercise due skill care and diligence in applying its AML policies and procedures and in failing properly to assess, monitor and mitigate the risk of financial crime in relation to business related to those authorised entities. Link to the final notice and the press release can be found in the podcast description. Now, one more bit of regulatory news, this time from the European Union, specifically from the European Securities and Markets Authority, or ESMA, which has issued its final report on feedback received from the call for evidence on pre-hedging, which it announced back in 2022. Quotes, ESMA concludes that the uh, pre-hedging is a voluntary market practice which might give rise to conflicts of interest or abusive behaviours. Where ESMA, whereas ESMA does not find arguments to ban this practice at this stage, it also flags that these risks should be considered when issuing any future guidance. Link to the report is in the podcast description. Now, a bit of other news before we round up this week's cyber attack news. You may remember that I mentioned briefly a couple of weeks ago about the Law Commission for England and Wales, which had released a report on the property status of digital assets. I mentioned briefly that to prevent such assets falling into a legal gap between traditional property forms, a third form of property for certain digital products should probably be developed. Well, in a further related development, which I only picked up this week, but which happened last week, the International Institute for the Unification of Private Law, or UNIDWAT as it's known, has adopted draft principles on digital assets and private law. While the principles are not yet adopted and will not necessarily be binding on nations, the aim is to show a way globally for a consistent approach 
to such assets, especially given the global nature of finance and the decentralized basis for many such transactions. The link to the UNEDOIR draft principles can be found in the podcast description. The other main news this week, which is kind of other news really, because I couldn't find anywhere else that I particularly wanted to put it, is that the US Treasury has named Andrea Gaki as head of the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, FinCEN, the US Financial Intelligence Unit and AML body. We end this week's Financial Crime Weekly podcast with the roundup of cyber attack news. We'll start this week in Pakistan, where the Electoral Commission or the Election Commission has been the subject of a cyber attack. Staff identified a number of suspicious emails which caused the Commission to issue a notice of cautionary behaviour to staff, urging them to ignore emails from unknown or anonymous sources. Generally, that seems like a good approach to life anyway. To critical infrastructure now, and Microsoft, Microsoft has apparently thwarted another cyber attack on Ukraine's power grid. However, it's difficult to get widespread confirmation of this, so I'll take it with a pinch of salt until I know better. That being said, it's not unknown for Russia to attack the Ukrainian power grid, with attacks on that part of its critical infrastructure being common prior to the February 2022 invasion. In other critical infrastructure news, the Australian infrastructure manager Ventia has taken some systems offline after a cyber attack. This action is believed to have contained the attack. Microsoft has also announced the Chinese that Chinese cyber gangs are targeting governments in Western Europe in a bid to acquire confidential data. The suggestion is that it is a state-sponsored form of attack. However, European governments are not the only ones subject to this, and the US has also been subject to these attacks with the discovery again by Microsoft of a campaign of espionage targeting a number of organizations, particularly government agencies. The Financial Times has reported this week the flaw in the payment system operated by Revolut, the financial services provider, meant that over a period of months, cybercriminals were able to steal $20 million before the issue was identified and the flaw in its system was closed down. As I said, this is only a report from the FT, although it does carry a significant amount of weight because of that. Nothing has been confirmed by Revolut, but I suspect that the pressure will grow on Revolut to make some kind of statement in the coming weeks. There is news this week of more victims of the MoveIt cyber attack which continues to rumble. Deutsche Bank and its sister company Postbank have both announced that customer data was leaked. The announcement came in a letter to customers which outlined that their name and IBAN, which is the international banking account number, formed part of the compromised data. Further announcements were made by Majoral and two of its clients, ING Bank and Comdirect. I suppose it's a question of sitting and waiting for more on, of information on this to come out. And I did think we'd neared the end, but no, and again, the Klopp ransomware group, which is believed to have been behind the MoveIt cyber attack, has also issued a threat to those organisations which have not yet paid a ransom. Now, there was a, a good tweet this week, a reminder of the scale of the attack from someone called Brett Callow, who is at Brett Callow, who is a threat analyst at MCSoft. Well, he's identified that 287 organizations have been Im impacted by the cyber attack on MoveIt, which it calculates has impacted 18,154,787 individuals so far, but only 50 organizations have actually revealed the detail of individual data. The MoveIt cyber attack is a reminder that, as Lenin said, 
Everything is connected to everything else. Nearly done on this week's bumper edition of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. Now, the counteroffensive against cyber criminals picks up with a bit of news from Greece, where the National Intelligence Service has launched a new cybersecurity centre. The Security Operational Centre, the SOC, which is part of the Cyberspace, Cyberspace Directorate, will launch in September and have monitoring responsibility for cyber threats and security breaches. Finally this week, two other points to flag, and then we're done. First, Beasley's report, Spotlight on Cyber and Technology Risks 2023, has indicated that, quotes, the global annual cost of cybercrime is predicted to reach eight trillion US dollars in twenty twenty three and ten point five trillion US dollars by twenty twenty five, up from three trillion US dollars in twenty fifteen when the study began. The link to the report, which can be downloaded for free, is in the podcast description. And finally, some light reading, a blog post from the peerless JD Supra outlining seven key practices which companies could adopt to ensure cybersecurity while employees are working remotely. The link to that is in the podcast description. That's it for this week's episode of the Financial Crime Weekly Podcast and a bumper episode it was too. If you want to do so, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and you'll hear from me again, all being very well indeed, next Sunday with the usual roundup of all things financial crime. Have a great week, everyone. <laughs>